Good morning, everyone. Hopefully, you're having a great week. Uh, last week, if you remember, I told you it was like a spectacular day because it was palindrome day at the same time that it was the day we would find out if we would have less winter, and we did, by the way. At least that's what the groundhog said. Six weeks less winter, which is amazing. Um, but today is another huge day, and I don't know that you're fully aware of it. It is a profound day in the life of Spokane. Um, and I thought I would bring it to your attention because it doesn't happen very often, this kind of day. And it's not just a day, it's stretching a full week. A full week, yes. If you did not know, Spokane is host to the United States Championship, mind you, for curling. Yep, that's right. Yep. Started yesterday, the 8th, goes through the 15th. This, this tells you how far Spokane has come in our country, right? The fact that we would host... But here's, here's the thing. Here's the truth. Spokane is so cool at this point, right? Think about this for a moment. We are so... Like, we've risen to such a level that not only are we hosting the curling national championships, but technically, Cheney is hosting, <laughs> right? So it's so below us that we would have Cheney host the national championship <laughs> and take credit for it in Spokane. So um, anyhow, if you'd want to go, let me know. Uh, I could just imagine myself and maybe KJ dressed up cheering for some random team from like Dubuque, Iowa or something and uh, just making fun of ourselves the whole time. So if you want to go, let us know. Um, it, it could be a fun event. Shifting from that, I know this is another hard shift. We're going to go into our passage uh, for the morning. And uh, I'm actually going to start with a quote. Now, we've been in this little Henry Nouwen small group, and so I've been reading a lot of Nouwen and reflecting uh, on him and his writings. And uh, last week, we had a conversation around this particular quote uh, that I think is true, and, uh, and yet hopefully not true so much in this community. But this is what Henry Nouwen says. Often, I have the impression that priests and ministers are the least confessing people in the Christian community. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, hopefully not truth in this place, because I think on a regular basis, uh, we try to admit our inconsistencies, our faults, to reveal our uh, invulnerable ways, kind of where we're at in the faith journey. Uh, but I, I think there is this overall impression that ministers try to give off that we kind of know everything, like that we have all the spiritual answers, that if you have any part of your spiritual life that you might question or wonder about, don't worry, bring it to us because we certainly have the answer. Uh, I hope by now, after having been together for 13 years, that you would realize that that's not true, that um, others may feel that way. I certainly don't. I uh, often have more questions uh, than answers, and today's passage is no different. 
Today's passage is filled with uh, what I could uh, communicate as having a lot of questions uh, and maybe just a few specific answers that I have deep confidence in. So what I figured I would do is share the passage, maybe highlight a few things that I'm kind of like, oh boy, wow, that's for another discussion, and then get to a few things that with deep certainty uh, I can communicate with great confidence, all right? So here's our passage today, starting in Colossians 1, verses 20 to 23. And it says this, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay? There's a lot here in this extremely long run-on sentence. First, he says to reconcile to himself all things. Okay? Reconcile all things. Now, all, for those of you that are really into the Greek, in the Greek, all means all. Okay? So that, that part, just to be clear... Is, uh, is pretty clear. So that means all animals, that means all creation, that means all everything. And so when some people read this, they say, oh, all means he'll reconcile all people. Period. End of story. And other people read it and go, oh yeah, so all means that he reconciles some people. Right? And so then the question becomes, do you interpret this verse in light of all the other verses, or do you interpret all the other verses in light of this verse? Great question. Moving on. Um, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Sounds bleak. It is bleak. Um, but I think Paul's getting at something interesting. He highlights alienated, which is probably tethered to feelings, emotions. Do you feel connected or not? Mind, thinking, evil deeds, actions. So what he's trying, I think, to cause us to picture is that in our mind, our heart, our emotions, our actions, there is this thing going on that's creating some unique separation. But why is Paul bringing that up now? Is he trying to help the Colossian church to see something different because of these heresies going around? Or... Is he trying to contrast this idea to this image of Christ that we looked at last week that is so glorious and grand? Again, great questions. He moves on and says, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Some hear that and think of the hymn that I remember growing up singing as a little kid, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no way to reconcile with God but the blood of Jesus. But then Paul later on says, well, without the resurrection of Jesus, all the other stuff is kind of null and void, right? But why doesn't he bring that up here? Why doesn't he talk about the resurrection in this moment? It seems like that would be a no-brainer from our perspective, right? And yet he doesn't. Why? Again, great question. Moving on. Next phrase. If indeed 
you continue in the faith. Typically, when you read the word if, it feels conditional, right? Like, oh, that means if you continue. It sounds like it depends on us. Does it? Does it not? How does this fit in? Does it mean I can lose faith? Can I lose reconciliation? Can I lose what Christ has already done? Or can I not? Must I keep working for it? You can see how there are a lot of things in this passage that require much more dialogue than what we're going to cover this morning. So instead of us being focused on all of the things that we kind of have a lot of questions about still in the text, what I want to do is to focus on a few that I think we can say with absolute certainty help us to understand the text and help us to understand how we're called to live in light of the magnitude of Christ. And my goal is to kind of highlight one idea and then give us a spiritual practice to embody throughout the week to kind of practice that particular idea. All right? So that's the goal. That's where we're headed. And the text starts off with something that I think is very clear for us to understand, and it's the first two words of verse 21, and the phrase is, and you. Okay? So what Paul does at this moment is he shifts in the text from third person to second person. He moves from this cosmic, huge, magnificent idea and moves into a more personal understanding. And so what he's doing in the text is right before he's reminding us of this otherworldliness of who Jesus is and then says in light of that otherworldliness, let me remind you of who you are, right? So he makes that dramatic shift. And uh, for me, anytime I think on the magnitude of Christ, anytime I consider the awesomeness of God, one of the first things that jumps into my mind is the extreme complexity of the universe. I don't know if when you think of space, your mind like mind shrinks immediately to things I cannot even fathom. I thought what I would do is just give you a couple little reminders of the magnitude of Jesus and the magnitude of the universe. Here's a picture of the earth. You're pretty familiar with that idea. Um, but if you think about the earth and you think about its distance to the moon, um, oftentimes we go, yeah, that's just but a hop, a skip, and a jump in the known universe, which is true, right? And yet, within the distance between the earth and the moon, you can fit our entire a uh, series of planets and still have about 5,000 miles to spare. That the whole solar system that we kind of understand and wrap our mind around kind of fits within uh, the Earth to the moon. But then if you think about North America and where we live and you put it in relation to Jupiter, it would look a little bit like this. That little green dot is North America. Uh, and that's just a part of Jupiter. You begin to see how small we are in light of how big everything else is. If you consider Earth as it relates to Saturn, you would realize that you can fit six Earths just in the rings leading up to Saturn. Like We haven't even talked about Saturn yet, just the rings, six Earths inside. Then when you consider the Earth to the Sun, you begin to see that it is but that little tiny dot compared to the magnitude of that which welcomes our days and heats our earth. And then you start to go, man, we are really small 
compared to the earth, and that's very small compared to the sun. But at least it stops there. Except when you consider the sun compared to like another star, it would look like that. And then you go, oh my word. Like the complexity and the magnitude and the awesomeness of creation is small compared to the magnitude and awesomeness of who God is, right? I think what Paul is getting at in this particular idea is that you have God and you have creation and then you have us. And so he says, and you. And I think the point of starting with that phrase is to imagine for a moment that you take whatever telescope we use to see all of that complexity and far more that I didn't share. And if you were to turn it around and face it toward this particular space this morning, imagine that you look through that end of the telescope and you start with the known universe and then you begin to like move closer and you see a series of galaxies and then you move even closer and then you start to zoom into the Milky Way and you move even closer and our solar system comes into the view and then Earth comes into view and then the United States comes into view and then Washington and then Spokane and if you keep zooming in then downtown corner of third and Howard into this space and now imagine that that is looking at you and you put it in reverse and zoomed down I think what Paul is getting at is that there is this preeminent Christ, this magnitude of who God is, and he wants us to notice the way the camera is facing. The camera is not going from us as the center looking out. The whole passage is leading us to see the camera from the lens of God looking in, right? So it's this idea that if you start with us and zoom out, we're left with a God who kind of orbits around our life, a God that we can manage and control, a God that kind of makes sense to us. But if we start with the camera where Paul starts and look at who God is, then it's pretty clear to see why he would say, and you. Kind of like, well, and you too, right? Because the point he's getting at is that we are caught up in something much, much bigger than we are often aware of. And I think it's good to hear the phrase, and you, because it's a reminder of where we fit into the story, but a small part of this grand narrative. So here's a spiritual practice I would love to encourage you to practice this week. Each day, this week, I would encourage you to meditate two or three minutes just on the magnitude of Christ. And do that in whatever way you find helpful, but it could be to write down all the characteristics and qualities you can think of of God in a brainstorming session or maybe take one of those aspects of his character and think about what it means that he is absolutely pure and holy or what it means that he is otherworldly powerful or what it means for whatever particular characteristic you want to focus on that day. And then I think any time you spend time in meditation, reflecting on something, it becomes more powerful if you then turn and share it with someone. So my encouragement would be, as you reflect during the day, 
to either text someone or talk to someone or interact with someone and just simply say, man, today I was caught up in the wonder of who Christ was in this way, right? So I would encourage you to practice just this idea of God's glory and magnitude. The second little phrase in verse 22, there's two other words that stand out to me and those two words are but now. Uh, It might not show up in your version, but in the Greek, when he transitions from verse 21 to 22, it says, but now. Now, many of you have read The Lord of the Rings or other books of Tolkien. He has this statement that he makes often where he says that uh, humanity is soaked in a sense of exile, right? This idea that there is a place we should be and we're not there. We're soaked in this sense of exile, longing for more, waiting, feeling like we're not totally where we should be. But the text comes into this and says, but now, and then goes on to say, you he has now reconciled. And what that means is that at this very moment, if God is looking down and as he looks down into your life, whatever situation you are in, he can look on that situation and simply say, but now, and everything changes. We exist in the space called but now, which means we are in a space that declares us not guilty. We are in a space where we've been forgiven the penalty of sin. If you're in relationship with God, you rest in this idea that you have been redeemed, that He frees us, that we're no longer under the power of sin, that our relationship with Christ is whole or complete, that we can draw near to Him. The text tells us we can talk to Him without fear, that He welcomes us, He forgives us, He lets us walk in freedom. He is our friend. He is our Abba. This whole idea that we are completely reconciled with God. But I think when I reflect on that, it makes me ask the question, but are we living as if we've been reconciled? Do we actually believe that truth? That all the things I just read are true of you in Christ? Or does it feel different than that? I know many of you have seen uh, before and after pictures, right? A before and after picture that might be tied to exercise equipment. If you get this particular item, this is what you'd look like before it, here's what you might look like after it, right? Or a particular diet or some particular medicine. You get the idea. There's these before and after photos. And uh, sure, they're filled with lighting tricks and Photoshop and a bunch of other ways of uh, creating this misunderstanding really between what was before and what is after but I think a lot of us get this idea that we all want to have a before and an after photo in whatever area of life right Um, and I started thinking and, and just imagine for a moment just reflect back on your before Christ photo if you can some of us had a life where early on in life you were connected to who Christ was But for others, there is this clear distinction of before Jesus, this was me. And then now after Jesus, 
this is me. I want you to think of your before for just a moment, but now I want you to shift and start to think about what your photo looks like, your after photo, the photo of what it looks like to be in Christ, to be his child, to be reconciled, to be made holy, to be made right with him, right? And if you're anything like many of us, if you're anything like me, I think even though we see the after photo, the after photo still leaves us feeling a little bit not covered, a little bit not reconciled. Maybe there's this sense of weakness or separation, maybe an anxiety or an insecurity, maybe a sense of like, well, that, that's maybe my in-between photo, like I've got my before photo, and then I got my like, well, there's getting some work done, but we're not quite at the after photo yet, right? Um, I don't know if you feel that way. There are times I absolutely feel that way, that my after photo does not look the way I imagine it should. So I want you to think just for a second about your after picture. And I want you to answer this question in your mind. Does your after photo look like this? Because what Paul is saying is if it looks like anything other than Jesus, you don't have a clear picture of what your after photo is. Right? Like, it is such an upgrade. Like, I got abs now, I got hair, I got like, I mean, it's a major change, you know? That there is a shift that happens when we understand the reality of what Paul is talking about. That when God looks at your after photo, he sees Jesus. When God looks at your after photo, he sees his righteousness, his purity. He sees you as reconciled, and your after photo looks like Jesus, which is a pretty amazing after photo. And it's an after photo that should give you absolute confidence. It should have you not fearing anything in your relationship with God. It should give you a freedom. It should give you even more of a desire to worship. So if that's our after photo, why do we still live in shame? Why do we still not feel reconciled? Why do we still, some of us, try to pursue all the time pleasing this God who already sees us as Christ? Abraham Kuyper makes this statement, this Dutch theologian. He says, there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And the thing that he is crying over you and me is that same thing. They are mine. I've chosen them. How amazing. That one, mine. And he's declaring it. He's screaming it. He believes it. He owns it, right? Because the after picture is so different. So here's something I'd encourage you to practice this week. Um, in sports psychology, they have this little idea of mantras. Um, often what they do is they try to have the athlete replace a negative thought uh, or something that kind of trips them up in the middle of 
whatever sporting activity it might be and replace it with a mantra. Like I can accomplish it, I can do it, nothing can stop me, whatever mantra it could be. And my encouragement to you is to let but now be a mantra for you this week. So to quote it throughout the day and to keep quoting it till you believe it, to keep saying it. Or when something comes up like, I feel like God doesn't love me, or I feel a sense of shame, or I'm discouraged by my insecurity related to my connection to Jesus, that I can keep echoing this phrase, but now, that it's changed. It's over. It's different. It's new. And if it's not that mantra, I would encourage you to find your own. There might be a phrase that God wants you to continue to meditate on that will inspire you to understand this relationship and this connection with God. Which moves to our third particular certainty within the text. And that last two words are a minister. Paul wraps up the final part of his section this way. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, as you start to look at that passage, I want you to understand, first of all, that Paul's words at the beginning could best be understood as saying, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. What Paul is really getting at is not this conditional statement, but really like, I'm very confident that you're going to continue in the faith because you've already demonstrated this commitment and resolution to cling to who Christ is. That's what he goes on to say in that last section. That you have been doing it and you will, and I'm confident you'll continue to do it. It's this bold statement. But the phrase I'm most interested in is the one at the very end when he says this, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And the reason I think this one stood out to me so much is because it seems like an odd place to end with that. So again, track with the text. The magnitude and the awesomeness of God, this is how incredible God is. He's preeminent. He's over everything. And then on top of that, there's you. It's fine. But He loves you anyway, and it's spectacular. And when He sees you, He sees Christ, and you're redeemed and reconciled, and everything's amazing, and I'm a minister. It feels like, why are you finishing with that? It just doesn't make sense. And I, I wonder if what Paul is doing is really pointing us to this idea that I think is very, very profound. And it's one that's found in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. What Paul is getting at, and perhaps is trying to highlight at the very end here, is that you and I have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. That that is now our responsibility, or in another word, our calling. That we move from being these people who have just been redeemed 
and are sitting back going, man, I'm amazed at who Jesus is and all that He's done for me, to now being put into the posture of saying, and now you're calling from now until the end of your time in this state is to be a minister of reconciliation, to be a pastor, to be a missionary, to go on call or on mission in the world. N.T. Wright describes it this way, Christians must work to help create conditions in which human beings and the whole created order can live as God always intended. That's a powerful statement. He is saying that because you have the hope of the Gospel in you, that now you can bring that to bear on your neighborhoods, on your city. That you can begin to reach with this redemptive love into political systems and economic structures and ecological orders, and you can try to eradicate the world of systemic evil and injustice and idolatry and giving way to powers that have nothing to do with Christ. And that is our calling. That is our responsibility. To walk into those spaces with the power of the Gospel and in the work of the Holy Spirit to do the work of reconciliation. The Gospel what really is so powerful about it is that it goes beyond just saving souls, right? It is so much bigger than that. As he describes at the very beginning, it's reconciling all things to Him. And the task of every one of us as followers of Jesus is to proclaim the reconciliation of all things back to God through Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead and now reigns supreme over the world He created, the world He holds together, and the world He is redeeming. And so here's my encouraged practice for us this week. To find a way this week to seek to be a minister of reconciliation. Now, that could be a whole list of things, right? One simple way to look at it would be to find a broken relationship either in your world or between someone that you know and begin to provide healing for that. Or love a stranger in a really tangible way. Right? Or begin to push back at some level of injustice or plant a garden or do something that is moving all of creation and humanity toward a deeper reconciliation with God If you're out of ideas and unsure, talk about it with your small group. What are some practical ways you can lean into the calling? And then pray, because I'm convinced that the Spirit doesn't want us sitting around waiting. And so the Spirit will prompt us to say, here's a pretty clear way to begin to make the world know that the hope of the Gospel is true. So my hope this morning is to remind us of the phrases, and you, which gives us a pretty clear perspective of our place in the world. But now, it reminds us that we are deeply reconciled to this amazing God. And then a minister, which is a call to participate. Let me pray, and we'll close our time. God, we 
are aware of your awesomeness. And may this passage and many other things in our lives give us a reminder that the lens that we're looking through does not start with us and move toward you, but in a much clearer picture, it starts with you and moves towards us. That the world revolves and all of the known universe revolves around you. It was created for you. And you hold all things together. Help us to meditate on that this week. May we also be reminded that when you look at our after picture, you see Jesus. And that we can rest in that grace. And finally, God, may you point us in directive ways this week to bringing hope and reconciliation to the world around us, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. And may it be very tangible. May we see little miracles that you perform throughout the week. And may we give you praise and glory for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.